Well, kia ora, good morning, everybody. Uh, we're here in week two of what we're now knowing as the, the second little lockdown that we're experiencing, and we can only hope that next week we're going to be back up and running in a, a more traditional way. Well, before I get started this morning, uh, I just want to signal to parents out there who've got children with them that um, today's sermon is more around about a teenager upward uh, level. So um, just to allow you some time to ensure that you don't get asked questions that you don't want to give answers to. Um, now might be the time to arrange an alternative for uh, your children. Uh, all that to say, um, we've got a few moments here because uh, I want to be able to lead into what it is that we're talking about this morning. Uh, many of you will appreciate we're looking at 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And what we find here is that Paul is immediately in conflict, in conflict with the power of the culture that was dominant within Corinth at the time. Paul, of course, came from a Jewish background and as a, a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jewish uh, community in Jerusalem, uh, Paul had been shaped by scriptures, shaped by his culture. And uh, one of the things about Paul's life is that we don't hear him talking about his spouse, his wife, but we can be assured that he was at some point married. Why? Because you had to be married to be a Pharisee. You had to be married to be part of the Sanhedrin. And so for Paul, uh, he's bringing to this culture a background of, uh, of Pharisaic Judaism, as well as uh, the understanding of the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. So he was uh, carrying all of this culture himself. And then he gets to Corinth and the Greek culture there was very powerful, very dominant. Dominated in particular in Corinth by the main temple that was on the highest hill in Corinth dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite. That's where we get our word aphrodisiac from. Uh, so of course you can see straight away that it was a sex cult. Now as a sex cult, it meant that Worship activities included sexual activity. Uh, at a given time in Corinth's history, there were over a thousand men and women prostitutes who would ply their trade from out of the temple uh, on any given night as an act of worship for them and an act of worship for their customers, so to speak. And so therefore, we've got this huge clash of moral culture going on here in Corinth, Paul from his Judaic uh, background, as well as being a Christian, and then the domination of this culture uh, that was in, in Corinth at the time. Uh, Michaela and I, many years ago, went to India, and we were spending some time with the Baptist Church uh, mission to Kolkata, and we were taken down a particular street in a little suburb called Sonagachi. And in Sonagachi, it's, a, it's a, an area dedicated essentially to prostitution. And there were literally thousands of women, two to three deep, on the streets, uh, plying their trade in a way of making a living. It was one of the most horrendous sights that I've ever experienced. But these women were doing it out of poverty. In Corinth, these folks were doing it as an act of worship to the goddess Aphrodite. And so we find ourselves looking at this uh, the scripture that Paul is introducing to us, the letter that he's introducing to the Corinthians about how they can live in that culture. How can you live in an over-sexualized community and still have a level of purity which is acceptable to God? 
Well, Paul is now trying to carve out, if you like, a, a place and a space within this incredible culture, this powerful culture for what it is that God wanted for his people. Really challenging. And so let's look at the scriptures. It starts uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. Paul says, by quoting himself, he says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. If you notice that scripture, it's got quotation marks around it. Paul is actually quoting what we believe is himself when he is talking to the Corinthians saying, this is what Christian grace looks like. You have a freedom from the law, which allows you to consider what it is that is right, what it is proper, what it is that is holy, and take that and apply it to your life. Within this freedom, of course, there's always choice and opportunity to do stuff that doesn't please God. And so that's why Paul says, look, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. So Paul is saying, don't go down that track of being overwhelmed or consumed or addicted to sinful behavior. I suppose as New Zealanders, we're looking forward to a election coming up in about six weeks time. And within that election, there are two referenda, one concerning the consumption of uh, social marijuana, recreational marijuana, and the other is about euthanasia. I would suggest to the church that this scripture is exactly what Paul would be having us consider if marijuana consumption becomes legal. Paul would say, it's legal, but it's not beneficial, okay? And so therefore, we as Christians, we've got to look at these things that come around in a modern age and say, what is it that Paul would do? What is it that Jesus would do? I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. So Paul is calling out wisdom here. He's saying, listen, consider your actions in light of the, the revelation of God, the entirety of scripture and the tradition of the church and work out for yourself what is right and what is proper, what is beneficial. Even if it is legal, doesn't mean that it's right. So let's just have a quick look at what Paul was trying to work through when it comes to uh, legalism and grace. You see, within the scriptures themselves, we find that the scriptures are divided into two, two lots of books. One comes from the Old Testament as we know it. It's the law of God. And people were defined by that law. They kept the law. They obeyed the law. They worshiped through the law. They were intimidated by the law. But they kept the law in such a way that they could please God and please their own conscience about the fact that they were pleasing God by keeping the law. That is legalism. Not a bad thing in itself because it provides a place for God's grace. But when we look at it, we see legalism is, everything, is saying everything is wrong unless it's permitted by Scripture. That's a legalistic mindset. Everything is wrong unless Scripture allows it to happen. Now, we find communities, Christian communities around the world who live out of this mantra uh, for example, in Pennsylvania and in the United States, there are a lot of Amish communities. They're essentially living under this, this rule. They're saying everything is wrong unless it's permitted by Scripture. So therefore, they don't have modern technology. They stick to old traditional methods of farming, etc., etc. Uh, there are lots of examples around the world of this. But it's really saying unless otherwise, 
we're going to stick to an Old Testament view of the world. However, Paul takes a completely different angle to this covenant of grace. And he says this, grace means that everything is good unless prohibited by Scripture. Everything is good unless prohibited by Scripture. So it's an open-minded, open-questioning view of life, which says, what would God have us do except what it is that is prohibited? What is it that God would have us do except what is prohibited by Scripture? We might say, gosh, that's, a, that's, that's an enormous amount of license. That's an enormous amount of freedom. Yes, it is. And it calls for maturity. Calls for a high level of response to what God is saying to you in the moment, in the day, in the culture. But let me take you back to Genesis and give you an idea of where this came from. This isn't a new idea. This is straight out of Genesis. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 2. Right at the beginning of the creation with Adam and Eve, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Can you see here the big picture? God is saying, you're free to do anything you want. You're free to eat anything you want. There's only one tree that I want you to stay away from. That's where the prohibition was, just one tree. So the attitude was freedom rather than legalism. That was what God wanted for us. He's saying, look, the whole earth, the whole planet is yours to go and fill and to enjoy and, uh, and just keep away from that one tree. That's where the prohibition was. So Paul is drawing upon a mindset here that God gave right at the beginning, which says we as people are free to explore, but we've got to be wise about it. So let's just go back to that scripture that we started with. It says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. I say, so Paul is calling upon us in our ever-changing world to say, what is it that's beneficial? What is it that's right? Now, Paul goes on to tap into a, um, a Greek saying, another set of quotation marks here, uh, which is really helpful for us to understand what Paul is getting to here. It says this, you say food for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy them both. Now, when we hear someone say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, stomach for food, we go, well, that makes sense. Yeah, we can understand that. Where else do you put your food except in your stomach? And uh, the stomach is made for food, so therefore food and stomach go together and it's all good. But then he says this, and God will destroy them both. Well, what we're being told here is essentially part of the Greek philosophy of living. The Greek philosophy of living was a separation of the body and the spirit. So we're being told within a Greek mindset here that fill up your body with food because it doesn't matter at the end of the day, God's going to destroy them both. It doesn't matter. Do what you want with your body. So not only fill it up with food, but you can fill it up with alcohol. You can fill it up with drugs. You can fill it up with as much sex as you can handle. Uh, you just fill it up with anything because it's all about your pleasure. Because why? God's going to destroy them both. And it's only your soul that is saved. Here's a little picture that I picked up on the net, which I think sort of captures the mindset of the Greek philosophy of living. It's a dualist approach to living, uh, basically separating the soul and the body. 
The body is left to return to the dust. It's of no value to God. And yet our, our spirit is saved. Our soul is saved. So this is what Paul was contending with when it came to the culture because people were prepared to fill their stomachs full of food, fill their bodies with as much recreational sex as they could find, all on the basis that all of that stuff didn't count at the end of the day. Well, God has a completely different view. The Christian God has a completely different view. If we go back to Genesis, we see that God blew, blew, blew life into the dust that formed us. And out of this miracle, God created a body that you and I both occupy right now. We all got one each. And um, we know that doctors with all of the advancements of medical science are still trying to work out how our bodies work. Yeah. So out of this miracle of the dust being made into human form, God is saying, I'm prepared to save this as well. I want the whole package redeemed and set free in the resurrection. And uh, in a couple of months, we'll be looking at the resurrection in a greater detail. And we see here, though, why it is that God wants to save the body, because the body is incredibly made in the image of God. So let's just go back to our scriptures. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. There's the reference there to the resurrection of what? Of our bodies. Our bodies aren't gonna be destroyed in eternity for eternity's sake. Our bodies and our souls will be raised to new life. Paul goes on to say this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. You see, Paul is wanting to build a new theology about our body and our spirit, which would then cause people to think twice about heading off and taking up the, the, the recreation of the dominant culture or the worship within the dominant culture, i.e. temple prostitution. Paul then says, in an obvious form, he says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their body, sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul keeps drawing us back to the fact that Christ paid the price for us. In that last verse in those uh, verses in front of you there, Paul is reminding the Corinthians that they were bought at a price. Now, the reason why Paul would suggest that we need to be reminded of this is because um, to be bought at a price means that we're tapping into a, a cultural phenomenon that was dominant within the Middle East, and that was slavery. But more importantly, Paul is talking about what he referred to himself as being to Christ, and that is a bond slave. Paul introduces himself to the Romans as a bond slave. It's somebody who has made a conscious decision to bond themselves over 
to a master, not someone who's a slave because they've been forced into it because of uh, war or forced into it because of debt or forced into it because of some crime they've committed. No, a bond slave is someone who says, I will freely surrender my whole life to the master. Now, when do you surrender your whole life to the master and the master comes up to you and says, hey, I want you to go work in my field. You don't say to the master, well, look, I'm your bond slave, but you only get my soul. You only get my soul. Therefore, I will think, I will worship, I will pray, I will do anything for you, but you can't have the use of my body. Well, you wouldn't be a very effective slave, would you, at that point? Um, Because the master wants you to be there fully available to be able to take your whole being, your body and your soul into the field to be able to harvest the wheat, for example. And so we are told that we are to honour God with our bodies and we are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. This is what sets us apart. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been united with Christ. You see, let me put it this way. Paul's command for sexual purity is built upon the understanding that our bodies are one with Christ and no longer our own. No longer our own. When we become committed followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is is freely available to to inhabit us. And by doing so, we are fused with God in an eternal way. One of the things that we um, can get a little bit sidetracked with this piece of Scripture is that we can be a little bit drawn, I suppose, to the fact that Paul's talking about sexual immorality and prostitution and being one flesh. It's very, very easy to miss out the scriptures that are piecing all of this stuff together. And so what I want to do right now is just show you how intentional Paul is about describing our new humanity. Let's have a look at this. Notice those verses there that have been underlined and boldened. Let me just read those to you. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So we've got a a unity going on here, a partnership, the Lord and our bodies. Further on, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? That's, That's a huge statement, isn't it? What a powerful statement. When I'm born again, when I become a Christian, my body now becomes a member of Christ. Goes on to say, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Wow. And then this whole passage, the end of this passage here, I didn't highlight it, but it says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul is advocating for a new morality based upon a new humanity. Paul is advocating for a new morality based upon a new humanity. The whole idea of restraining ourselves from sexual temptation very easily locks ourselves into a mindset of just white knuckling it. I'm just gonna hang in here, my body is tempted, but I'm not gonna take it on. I'm not gonna submit myself to any of that physical temptation. And people can live a life of of, uh, prudence and live a life of uh, subjugation of their own body to the point where they just sort of live this life of resisting temptation rather than surrendering themselves to this understanding that they are part of Christ. 
You are part of Christ. You have been born again. You've been bought at a price. Your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell within. You have been united with Christ. Can you see the imagery Paul is trying to describe to you here? This isn't about just saying don't have sex and do have sex. This isn't about sex. This is about our our humanity being completely revolutionized and an understanding that takes us away from just the carnal things of this world that we're drawn to and we're looking Godward, Christward, heavenward, to ensure that we're reminded of who we are in God, a whole new humanity. And now that Paul has set this up, we're waiting for this word, therefore, 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 Paul's command for sexual purity is built upon the understanding that our bodies are one with Christ and no longer our own, therefore, now, For matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, what I want to draw your attention to here is the first part of that sentence. Now for the matters you wrote about. You see, Paul is in a dialogue with the Corinthian church. Uh, This might sound a little bit confusing, but this letter, 1 Corinthians, most scholars will say is actually 2 Corinthians. seems to be the second letter that they wrote. And if you look at 2 Corinthians there's a big chance that's actually four Corinthians because there's a dialogue of letters going on here between the church and Paul. Not to be confused and not to be disappointed that we've missed out on some of Paul's letters, but to remind ourselves that this is an ongoing dialogue that's happening between Paul, the the founder of the church, and the people who are living in this incredible culture of temptation. So Paul's been asked a question about what they should do about sex, essentially. And it says, now for the matters you wrote about. So Paul is being asked, is it good for us to have sexual relations with other women? Other woman being any woman. Other woman being woman from the, from the, uh, from the temple of Aphrodite. And Paul immediately says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And he goes on to say it further. If we read on the next verse, it says there, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Sexual immorality wasn't a condition that men, males, are subject to only. In this culture, men and women were equally participating within this temple worship. And so therefore, Paul is addressing the whole community here. And he's saying, look, because there's so much sexual immorality, we've got to contain and constrain sexual immorality to the point where you are just simply holding on to this uh, expression of your sexuality purely within marriage. So Paul, Paul goes on to say this, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, this is, again, a radical, a radical departure from the self-fulfillment that is always being demanded within the temple worship of Aphrodite. Your ecstasy, your pleasure was deemed to be an act of worship. So it was always about you. It was always about you. But now Paul has said, your body belongs firstly to God. 
You've been united. You've been fused with Christ. Therefore, your body is not your own. God owns your body because he paid the price of sending his son to redeem it. You have become, as Paul describes, a bond slave. Your body is not your own. Which as a segue, as a segue, can easily be used to just simply put a shout out for what it is that this vote about euthanasia is all about. You see, when we're being asked, shall we euthanize people who are unwell or elderly or past their best in whatever fashion that takes, whatever fashion it takes, we are there saying, my body is my own. I will do with it as I wish. Whereas traditionally within a Judeo-Christian setting, we have been told and always believed that my body is God's. God gave it to me. He's filled it with his spirit. I'm fused, I'm united in Christ. So therefore it's not my right to choose the day of my departure. My hands are in God, my life is in God, and it's up to his will and his good purpose is to when my days end. So again, even as we look at 21st century New Zealand, we've got a culture clash that's happening around this whole subject of euthanasia. This isn't just simply about my choice. My choice is wrapped up in another part of our culture called secular humanism, which says that we as people are constantly improving and we will therefore be able to make good, educated decisions about our world and our life apart from God. Okay, so that was an interesting little segue. All that to say, our bodies are not our own. Our bodies are not our own. And so therefore, when we enter into a marriage relationship, our goal is the pleasure of our spouse. Paul uses a word here, which I think has um, been translated well, if you are from an American culture. Let me point this word out to you. The word is yield. You see it right there on the fourth line. The word is yield. It's uh, mentioned twice. A woman will yield her body to her husband and a man will yield his body to his wife. Yielding is mutual submission, preferring one another's pleasure. Okay? In this context, it is. Mutual submission, preferring one another's pleasure. In the United States, in many of the states, their giveaway signs look like this. Yield. We have giveaway signs, and in the States, they use this word, yield which means to prefer the other person. If you're at an intersection and if you have to yield, that means the other person has the right of way. So you are preferring somebody else before yourself. If that makes sense, I hope it does in the context of the marital bed. It means that your pleasure is second. Your partner, your spouse, their pleasure is the priority. Why? Because your body is firstly God's and your body is secondly your spouse's. So therefore, yielding is about preferring one another within the context of your sexual relationship. When I was on the internet, I found this little picture of yield. I thought that sort of said it better than maybe just the plain old giveaway sign. But um, it reminds us of what Christian marriage is all about. It's reminding us that it's not about us. It's not selfish, but in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the purity and the honesty of that sexual relationship within a marriage, there should be generated there enough satisfaction sexually to ensure that you don't go looking elsewhere 
for, uh, for that temptation to take place within your life. And that's exactly what Paul talks about when he moves on from the subject, but keeps essentially in the bedroom. Paul says, do not deprive each other, this is sexually, other than except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The interesting thing here, of course, is that Paul is tying together spirituality, prayer, and sexuality at a very, uh, at a very similar level. You're exchanging one out for the other. So it describes to us exactly the way Paul saw prayer as well. Prayer was intimacy with God. And how is that possible? Well, it's possible because we are already united with him. We are in Christ. And so our attitude should take on that bearing of, of, of intimacy in prayer in the same fashion that Paul describes that intimacy within the marriage bed. And so by mutual uh, consent, you may separate yourself one from another for a season to be devoted to prayer and scripture as a season that we would call Lent, maybe within the tradition of the church, Lent. And that means that you uh, forego pleasure. It might be food, uh, it could be um, entertainment, uh, sex, to put yourself apart, set yourself apart and put yourself in a place where you are totally devoted to God only. But Paul reminds married couple that this isn't the permanent place to be. Set yourself apart for a season and then come back to that normal marriage relationship. Otherwise, you and the culture that you live in could be tempted because of why? Because of your lack of self-control, okay? Paul's not saying a lack of self-control is a sin. He's uh, essentially describing that as uh, a normal part of your life. You have made a choice to be married, unlike him who hasn't gone and got himself another wife after his wife has gone. And so here we are living in the 21st century and we ask ourselves the question, does the same thing apply? Absolutely, absolutely. We live in an over-sexualized community, a community that is promiscuous um, and all that. To say, to say that, I don't think we even go close to what Corinth was about. Corinth was wild at every level. Corinth would embarrass the hard, most hardened of hearts in keeping with what their culture was requiring from them with respect to worship. But we in New Zealand, of course, and in the Western world, we're overwhelmed with things from the internet, pornography, and the like, those are huge issues for us today. And they're all temptations that take people away from the purity of their marriage. And so we're challenged by this. And so Paul is saying, here's the model for marriage. Give yourself one to another, prefer one another, seek each other's pleasure, not your own. But for a season, take yourself apart and pray and seek God and then come back together again in a model that is undulating, and, and sort of systematic in a way that allows God to have right and preference. Paul now goes on to say something rather interesting, rather interesting. He says this to married couples. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Paul is saying that the ideal is to not be married, and that is what Paul is advocating for. 
It doesn't say it's a sin to be married. You're basically saying, this is the concession I give if you don't have the gift that I have. And Paul is referring to celibacy. Now, Paul is given himself, uh, sorry, Paul has enough room here, I think, to speak with authority about this because why? Paul has been married, but now he's single and he's making the choice not to remarry because by remarrying, as we're going to find out in other scriptures later on, you are obviously obligated and committed to the well-being of your spouse and any subsequent children. But Paul is saying if that's not the case, then you're better off being able to just devote your life 24-7 to the purposes of God and the mission of Christ. And so here's Paul basically bringing this, this conversation down to a landing place, saying, look, you've got choices here. You've got choices, you can be married. And if you are, this is how you conduct your sexual relationship with your spouse. You refrain from sexual immorality. Your sexual expression is contained and constrained within the marriage covenant. But if you're not going to be married, then that's a perfectly good thing too. And you can be like me, free to be able to get on with sharing the gospel. So Paul is pretty staunch about this. And he's staunch because he's wanting to pull the church out of the culture that's dominant. But not only pull them out, but lift them up. To say, we think differently because we are different. We're a different level of humanity because we are linked and yoked with Christ. And out of this, our life takes on a whole new pattern. Our morality is different. Our thinking is different. Our religious Practices are very, very different. Our relationships are different. Our marriages are different. And if our marriages are different, our children are different. If our children are different, our culture is different. Our community is different. And all of a sudden, we have this thing called the church, this Christian community that over generations becomes something of a phenomenon in respect to the culture around it. To be called out and to be called up separates ourselves from the culture. That's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. And so the challenge comes back to us individually. What are we going to do to ensure that our own relationships are functioning within the, the description that Paul has given us today? Are we going to honor God with our bodies, honor God with our hearts, honor God with our minds to ensure that we can be the church that celebrates the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Christ in such a way that he's glorified through everything that we do and everything that we are. Let me pray. Lord, we don't need to tell you about the world we live in. And yet the world we live in is no different really to anything that has gone before us. Lord, we thank you that you call us out. You call us up because by being and being participating in this community, we are given an, a choice, a freedom to be able to choose you again and again. Well, we know that in a world that we live in, we are subject to temptation in so many different ways. And yet, Lord, you've said that we can be different. We can contain our sexuality within positive, wholesome relationships. Not only positive and wholesome, but as an example to the world around us as to what it is that you prefer. And so God, help us to live this life. Help us to live at a level of 
glorifying you in everything we do. I pray for marriages today, Lord, that may be struggling, may be living in this realm of temptation or frustration. We pray, Lord God, that people would be able to seek you seriously about the things that are written in your word and uh, to prefer one another out of reverence for you, Lord, seems to be the highest call that we can take when it comes to our marriage. So Father, help us to participate in that new humanity, laying aside temptation and being drawn closer to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.